Chris, could you open us in prayer, brother? Thank you. Father, you are amazing to us, and we uh, look forward to the hour that we have now to be able to plumb the depths further of who you are, and we look forward to this next day on our eternal journey to uh, to just uh, continue to learn more about you, to revere you, to worship you, and to know you better. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so turn to Titus chapter 1, and I don't have any question sheets for you yet. I haven't had the time to write them, but that's okay. Um, we got the Bible, and we got each other's minds, and we'll walk, walk through it. And I will link it uh, very much to the Great Commission and to the finished work that we did in, in Matthew as we start. But um, i tell you what, uh, why don't we have two people, uh, Titus 1, 1 through uh, 9, and someone else can read 10 to the end of the chapter, 16. A servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, whose children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as thought, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Thank you. Somebody else, 10 to 16. <clears throat> for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain, but they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. All right, thank you. So um, so let's, uh, let's get some continuity from where we just were. We just finished um, the Gospel of, of Matthew uh, with the most famous part of the Gospel of Matthew, which is the Great Commission. Jesus said there, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, as we go to Titus, we're looking at instructions that Paul's giving to one of his young disciples, similar to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, uh, empowering them, uh, empowering Titus in this case, for the sake of the church. Similar to First Timothy, you know, uh, the instructions he gave is so that people know how they should conduct themselves in the church, which is the uh, pillar of the living God, the pillar of the truth. And so um, this construction of uh, healthy local churches is in, um, in Paul's mind here. The reason I left you in Crete is that you should appoint elders, plural, in every town. So Paul has a vision for the planting of healthy churches in the island of Crete. So what is the link between the completion of the Great Commission, the, the spreading of the gospel, making disciples, baptizing, and the establishment of healthy churches? How would you link those two together? Jesus said, go and, uh, 
okay, that's the Great Commission, go and make disciples. What's the link between that and the planting of healthy churches, local churches? The execution of the Great Commission uh, is done in the context of local churches, perhaps? Church leaders need to be set up, overseers, uh, and then they have to meet certain criteria. Okay, all right. Okay. Expository teach and so that people coming into the fellowship know the true gospel. That's right. So Jesus said in, in Matthew 16, saying to Peter and Caesarea Philippi, on this rock I will build my church, um, that being the universal church. But then in Matthew 18, he says, uh, if your brother sins against you, go show him his fault. If he doesn't listen to you, Take one or two others along. If he doesn't listen to them, tell it to the church. Clearly, that is the local church. Um, so Jesus wanted to establish local churches as a part of his overall church. Whenever you see the, the plural of the word church, so churches, uh, we clearly are talking about local church at that point because Jesus doesn't have many brides of Christ. He has one church. So the image of Jesus in Revelation 1 moving through the seven golden lampstands and the lampstands are the seven churches of the province of Asia. That's a, a picture of him moving and ministering to local churches. And then he's got a letter in Revelation 2 and 3 to each of those seven churches, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, etc. He's ministering to the local churches. The same thing is true here uh, in Titus and also in 1 Timothy 1 and, uh, and 2 Timothy, sorry. Um, these are what was known as pastoral epistles, and the, and the issue is uh, healthy local church involvement. The reason I left you in Crete is that you should appoint elders in every town. And so in every town, that's a local church, all right? How would you describe the difference between the universal church and the local church? What, I mean, we use the same word, but what is the one, what is the other, and how do you understand the relationship? easy for me to think of it like a bank and you have a bank that has maybe a headquarters or a branch or something like that but when I think <clears> of <throat> my local branch of the bank it's that branch on Carver Street or whatever and so but they they all make up the whole of, of the church putting together all of them uh come together make the make the make up the church anyone else the universal church happen at the local level that's how disciples are truly built and, and how, uh, yeah. So in the local church, if we go then back to my original question is how do we link the Great Commission with the planting of healthy churches? I see them as absolutely linked together. I, I do believe that there are ministries of Christians that are not directly tied to local churches, such as the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist. That's not a local church. That's a pooling of resources and people to achieve a task too big for any one of the individual local churches to do, a pooling of resources. Um, and I believe in that, I believe in the IMB, same thing with Campus Crusade for Christ or YWAM, Youth with a Mission, uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators and any other such mission agencies, none of those are local churches. Those are just Christians who band together to achieve something. You know, Samaritan's Purse, uh, Voice of the Martyrs, various other groups like that. The local church is, is different. It's a covenanted group of, of, of believers that get together, as Chris said, in a geographical location. And as Jim was saying, we build relationships there. We know and are known that there. And I see it absolutely as a fulfillment of the Great Commission, especially uh, with the issue of, of making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I see that very much tied to local church. I think it is in connection with local churches that baptism should happen. Others disagree, but uh, I think in general we can make that case. And then certainly teaching them to obey everything Christ has commanded. We've got to settle in and do that for a while. It's going to be a journey on that one. And that's best done in the context of a local church. So I've said this before. I, I would say a healthy, well-organized, biblically sound local church is the most powerful weapon in the hands of the Holy Spirit for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. That's how it happens. That's what missionaries should do. Missionaries should go to a community, and after they've spent years learning the language and culture and building relationships, their job is to be church planters, right? Their job is to plant 
a healthy local church comprised of nationals, people from that culture, led by them, intrinsic to that culture, doing healthy church life. So in that case, how does Titus speak into that? How, how does, you just heard all of Titus 1 read. How, does, how do the words, in, in, at least in Titus 1, or you know of the whole book, how does that relate to the Great Commission? Once, once the elect are brought into the church, believers, obviously a new believer is coming in, and then the knowledge of the truth needs to be taught to that person so that when they do go out as a group to establish a church, it will be established the knowledge of the truth. Absolutely. It's and a primer for church planting, basically. He lays out all the basic truths of the faith. Yeah, absolutely. Fundamentally. And, and the, the ministry of the word, the faithful, accurate ministry of the word runs all through this chapter. All right. It runs all through it. Uh, for example, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. We'll get into that in a moment. For the faith of God's elect. And my translation says the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Chris uh, translation, probably ESV. Am I right? The, the truth that accords with God? What does that mean? <laughs> just, sounds like they punted. But anyway, I mean, what do, you, what, what do you think that, you know, the truth, the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness? What's the relationship between the knowledge of the truth and godliness? How would you connect those two? Okay. The truth is necessary achieve godliness. So we have to know what godliness is before we can be godly. Would you agree with that? You have to know what you're shooting for. So like, you know, knowledge, faith, character, action should start with knowledge. Everything starts with sound doctrine, right? To know what godliness is. All right. What does that mean, by the way? Godliness. Are there other translations? Like piety, I guess. Christlikeness. Okay, do you like that? I like that. Godliness is Christ-likeness. Modeling after God's commands. So conformity to Christ. All right, so what he's saying is Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. That's my translation. All right, so uh, the word for means that's my purpose. I am a slave of God, and I'm a messenger of Christ, an apostle, for a purpose. And my purpose is to see faith formed in God's elect. So we can imagine converting faith, but I wouldn't mind saying also developing faith in God's elect. People who are Christians 20 years ago, their faith still needs to be strengthened and fed. And, you know, Paul says, that's what I do. I'm a bond slave of God and I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, and my job is to make certain that God's elect that are entrusted to me believe that they have faith, that their faith is fed, that their faith is strong, and that I deliver also the knowledge of the truth that, going with Chris's translation, accords with godliness, but I would say promotes godliness. It defines godliness, and then it produces godliness. Jesus said in John 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. In John 17, sanctify means set apart, set your people apart unto yourself, God, as holy. Set them apart as your own, your special possession by the truth. Your word is truth. So putting that all together, the ministry, the faithful ministry of the word of God promotes holiness and godliness and spiritual maturity. What does that have to do with the Great Commission? Much. That's what teaching them to obey everything I have commanded is all about. So, stepping back then, the Great Commission, uh, that's what God, what Jesus has given to us to do. Below that, I would say pretty close to right below that, is plant healthy churches and be part of healthy churches. Does that make sense? Doing good, healthy, local church work is vital. And that's what Titus is about. We're in Titus chapter 1, guys. All right, so that's, that's what it's about. Do you see then the link of where we've just come from, the Great Commission, 
And now where we're going in Titus, which is the way we're going to do Great Commission is got to have those healthy churches. What would you think about a Christian? Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Uh, I, I think he goes a little further in verse 9 to describe that teaching them that part where he says um, that this calendar that's going to be established must hold firm to the trustworthy word. So he's got to hold firm to it as taught. Right. So that he's then able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Uh-huh. So he's teaching these people sure. how to be godly. Yeah. And also to rebuke those who contradict, and that's a huge part of what's going to go on in our... Brother, absolutely. Jesus doesn't say this in the Great Commission, but it's definitely taught in other places. <clears throat> the doctrine that the apostles are going to lay out is going to be attacked and refuted and contradicted by the liar and the father of lies. You could look at the truth, the faith of Christianity, the body of truth as a, like a physical body, And there is no part of the physical body that is not subject to disease in this world. So it is with the body of truths known as Christianity. Every single one of those truths has been attacked by Satan at some point in history. All of them. And if you're going to plant a healthy church, you've got to do both. You've got to play both offense and defense. You've got to positively present the truth. And then you've got to defend it against contradiction and attack. And it takes a certain skill to know how to do that. He's saying, I want, to, I want to establish elders who are well-schooled in the doctrine. They're able to present positively the doctrine for the, for the uh, godliness of their hearers. And that they would come to faith and they would be mature. Um, but they also have to defend it. They have to defend uh, scripture against uh, false teaching. And we see this over and over. Go ahead, Lynn. And then the thought comes to mind. Where does Paul get his authority from? He was set apart. So his authority came from God, and he is passing that on to Titus when he says, my child in common faith, grace and peace from God. So he's passing it on to Titus. Then that's awesome. I'm so glad you said that. That's what's going on here. This is a little epistle and extremely dense, extremely dense, packed. Like 46 verses, something like that, real tight. But typical of Paul's epistles, it's going to expand once we start talking about it. (laughs) Okay, we're going to bring it out and it's going to just expand and expand. Who was Titus? He was one of his young friends. Uh, He was a mentor to Titus like he was to Timothy. They're very similar. Timothy and Titus are both called his child or his son in the faith. So he's the next generation of Christian leader the reason I left you in Crete is that you should appoint elders. So he's, he's an intermediary between Paul and the elders that are going to be appointed in Crete. So what Lynn said is very true. This epistle is written to a good friend, and yet it sounds very formal. I mean, look at the first four verses. Look at this. Imagine Paul writing this to a good buddy, like Paul a servant of God and of Jesus, uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie, dot, dot, dot. You're like, wait a minute. Imagine Titus saying, Paul, wait a minute. We, I mean, we know each other. I know this about you. So the letter isn't really for Titus. I mean, he knows all this, probably most of it anyway. The letter is for who? Who is the letter for? It's, yeah, it's for the church that he's going to be, church is going to work with, and then ultimately for us. So the Holy Spirit's using Paul, and Paul's kind of using Titus to get a bunch of doctrines across that are going to be important. And they're going to be useful for generations to come on what healthy church life is all about. See what I'm saying? So that's what we got here. This is, this is basically authority delegated from Almighty God and Jesus Christ through the Apostle Paul to Titus. It's, there's that, what Lynn was saying is true. This is a delegation of authority. And it's rolling on down there, and it's, that's, that's why it's relevant for us. Okay? So let's talk about it. Let's talk about this. And, and fundamental to at least up through the first nine, nine verses, but I think you could extend it throughout the whole first chapter is that in, in order to have healthy churches, you first have to have healthy church leaders. You've got to have good leadership in the church. People, humans, need to be led. They need 
under shepherds. They are like sheep and they need under shepherds. So all that energy and all that intellect and all that ability, it has to be corralled and focused in a positive direction or it'll be used destructively by Satan. So you need good leaders to lead people. And Paul is that good leader. And then Titus under him is a good leader. And the elders under Titus should be good leaders because you need good leaders to have a healthy church. You see what I'm saying? So that's what this chapter is about, uh, is the establishment of good leaders. And it starts, as Lynn says, with Paul and his own role. How does Paul describe himself here? Bond a bond servant of that's not actually what it says interestingly it's what he usually says a bond servant of god in romans he says a bond servant of christ that is the normal pattern but here he actually goes with i'm a slave of god and we really want to say slave that's anything you can think of in terms of a slave that's what Paul's claiming with this word. I'm God's slave. So without getting into all of the controversies and difficulties about chattel slavery and all that, but this is a common theme in the New Testament. You know, and it's, it's something Jesus calls himself. He is the slave of Yahweh. He's the servant of God, etc. But what does that mean? What does that mean for Paul's life? If he says, I'm a slave, a bondservant of God, what does that mean to him? Totally given over, meaning what? All right, so if you went to a, a slave in the first century and you asked him, what are your plans today? What would he say? <laughs> no, I'm not your, you're not your own, you're bought at a price. So if you're not your own, let's just take that. You're not your own. And then you went and asked a slave, what are you going to do today? What would the right answer be? Whatever, he said. Whatever the master tells me to do. Now, here's the thing. I've thought about this, and this is of the essence of our salvation and maybe one of the hardest things. We don't tend to think like that. We, we wander from that almost by the minute. You have to be constantly reminded that you're not your own. You have to be constantly reminded you don't get to do whatever you want with your time, energy, and money. We don't tend to think like that. We tend to think we're free agents, and we can spend our time, our energy, our money, however we want. Do the angels look on it that way up in heaven? I'm, I'm going to do whatever I want with my heavenly day today. <laughs> Absolutely, they do not. They do what God wants them to do, all right? Do you think we're going to be finally in heaven, free agents, able to do whatever we want with our time, energy, and resources in heaven? I mean in the new heaven, new earth. We're in our resurrection bodies. What do you think? Free agents at that point. Bumping into God from time to time. No, no. Uh, absolutely not. God's, center, God's throne is going to be the absolute perfect center of the new heaven, new earth. And all of us will serve him gladly. All right. Take a minute, if you would, and look at uh, Revelation 24. 22, sorry. Revelation 22, 4. Uh, uh, Said that that wrong. Twenty-two, three. Sorry, I said that wrong. Re Revelation twenty-two, um, three. Actually, just to get a context. Uh, if somebody could read Revelation twenty-two, one through three. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve in it. His what? Bondservants. <laughs> so wait a minute now. You're telling me that slavery is eternal? Apparently so. That's in the new heaven, new earth. And verse 4 says his name will be on their foreheads, like we're branded and owned by God. Will any of his bondservants in heaven have a problem with that? Not at all. Because the throne is in the center of the city. The throne's the center. It's the center of everything. And, you know, so you go back to Paul. He's just saying, I've already come to the conclusion that I am forever a bond slave of God. I am God's slave. 
And therefore, my time isn't my own. My life isn't my own. My body isn't my own. My money's not my own. Now, I want to just tell you personally, I struggle to actually think like that. I mean, practically on a daily basis. I do not think it's an absurd question if you were to ask me, so what are your plans today? I don't think it would be absurd for me to ask you that. And I think in one sense it isn't. But I mean, the way that we answer like secular people, that God isn't relevant at all to that question. Now, that's a problem. See what I'm saying? We haven't really asked God what to do with our time, energy, money today. We just kind of made our own choices. Been doing that for a while. And so Paul has learned to not do that. And if you, you see that in his life, all right, you see that in his conversion, right? He's breathing out murderous threats against the Lord and his disciples. He's on the road to uh, Damascus. Suddenly a light brighter than the sun flashes around him. He falls to the ground. He hears a, hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now, get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. So how does that relate to being a bond slave of God? Get up and go in the city and you'll be told what you must do. So uh, could you ask a question like, all right, Lord, I will, but how long is that going to last, that whole told what you must do thing? How long is that going to be? Well, what's the answer? Forever. From this point forward, I'll tell you what to do. And it's like, we all have to just come to grips with that. I say, do I have a problem with that? It's like, theoretically, no. In front of all my friends here, absolutely not. But real life, I seem to have a real problem with that. I don't think like a slave. I don't live like a slave. I live like a free man doing whatever I want. Paul didn't. It wasn't just a theory. He actually didn't live. He speaks to that and starting now. What does he say? Uh, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything. Right. Um, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, right. not to steal from them. Yeah, so that's a human, human thing. But they saw it as ultimately serving God, definitely. Paul, you know, uh, you know, he says, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are waiting for me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may, you know, do as well, basically. Testify to the gospel. So what he's saying is, I expect to be arrested, I expect to be persecuted, but I'm also told by the Spirit to go, and so I'm going to go. Go ahead, Clay. Um, I remember hearing a pastor preach not that long ago about godliness, and he shared that a devotion to God the Father, which results in God being pleased in him, uh, being pleasing to him, and then he listed some attributes to it. He said, serving Christ in the workplace, trusting God's provision, having a servant's heart. And the one that got my attention was trusting God's provision. It says, I know that God supplies all of my needs according to his riches, not mine. Amen. That's great. Uh, so fundamentally then, uh, um, an elder in Crete set up there needs to think like Paul does. Would you get the sense that way? Titus needs to think that way. All right. Now, no, no, Titus is not an apostle of Jesus Christ. That was a special function. But in one sense, he is just in the simple way that the Greeks use the word, just a messenger. Like you think about like in New York City, a messenger uh, service. You can imagine like where you call these people and say, hey, go bring this, bring this letter to 64, you know, the 64th Street, blah, blah, blah. So that person's not an exalted person. That person's literally just a, an apostle, apostle a messenger. So that's all it is. But we know it, it, there's an authority behind it. But fundamentally, um, spiritual leaders, elders, uh, need to think like Paul does here. Uh, think, I am a bond slave of God. And it isn't just leaders. Christians should think that way too. All right? Take a minute and look at Romans 6 for a minute. If you look at Romans 6. Um, 
And if someone could read Romans 6, uh, 15. Um, uh, let's say. Uh, yeah. Well, 23. We'll just go 16, uh, 15. Sorry, 15 to 23. 6, 15 to 23. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but are under grace? But under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were freed from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jim, read verse 22, just verse 22 again. But now you have been set free from But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. Slaves to who? To God. Who is that? Who is a slave to God according to that? Us. Every single Christian. Isn't that what Romans is saying? Romans 6. If you're a Christian, you have been set free from sin and have become what? A slave to God. So frankly, in the end, you're either a slave to sin or a slave to God. If you're a slave to sin, you're unregenerate, you're under wrath, you're storing up wrath, you're lost. If you are a Christian, according to Romans 6.22, you are a slave to God. So Paul's not unique in calling himself a slave of God. He's basically saying, I believe what I wrote, and I believe it's true of me. I am a slave to God, not to sin. Go ahead, Lynn. So we're not slaves to God, um, not slaves to sin, mm -hmm. but yet we sin. Right, because we're crazy, because we're insane, Lynn. That's the only reason. There's no other explanation. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Go ahead. <laughs> the things he's not supposed to do. The very thing I hate, I do. So, so then we have Christ, and that's the only way that right. we can be right. free of sin. All that's happening in Romans 7 is Paul saying, look, I am a slave to God, but in Romans 7 he's saying, I act like a crazy person. Sometimes I do very stupid things. That's, isn't that what he's saying? What a wretched man I am who will deliver me. When we're delivered, we're delivered from rebelling against God who is our master. When we're finally delivered, we will obey God all the time. We'll be his slaves, such as Revelation 22.3. We'll serve him. But we'll also be his sons and we'll be his bride. We'll be all of that. It won't be just slavery. It will also be adoption uh, like the relationship Jesus had with his father. You know, he loved the father, the father loved the son. Or that bride, bridegroom analogy as well. But the slave analogy is there. And by the way, that's why that is the answer to the question that I've asked on the issue of race relations and chattel slavery and American history and all that. Why isn't the New Testament clearly emancipatory? Why does it kind of nibble around it? Why does it use golden rule principles, which it did effectively to get rid of legal slavery all over the world? William Wilberforce and all that, all, you know, they, they use biblical principles, just simple golden rule stuff. Would you like to be a chattel slave? No, then don't own a chattel slave. All right, it just worked. It was effective. But the question you ask is, why does it seem like slavery is being managed in the New Testament and commands given to masters and slaves rather than just simple abolished? Now, you could argue with Philemon when he said, look, I could, I could order you to do the right thing, but I'm just asking you, please, do the right thing, which is set him free, emancipate him. So it was emancipatory in general, but it wasn't clearly. Why not? Because of Revelation 22.3. Slavery is permanent. Slavery will be in heaven. We will forever be God's slaves. But it's not like that. It's not like the image we have, uh, the antebellum south or any of that. It's not none of that. It's, there's no abuse to it. It's just he owns us. He created us. He owns us. 
He's in charge of us. We don't have a freedom in the matter. We can't just do whatever we want, irrespective of what the master thinks. That's the essence of sin, to think like that. So what's, what's happened in Romans 6 is like, you just need to know what happened. When Jesus rescued you, he brought you out of a dark kingdom of slavery to an evil master and brought you into a new kingdom of light of slavery to a good master. There is no third option in which you say, I'm not a slave at all. Right? Isn't that what you was like? I, I don't like either of those. I don't want to be a slave of the kingdom of darkness, and I don't want to be a slave of the kingdom of light, however you define it. I don't want to be a slave at all. What would you say to such a person that's saying they want no slavery at all? They're not regenerate. They actually, if they're not regenerate, then what are they? All right, but using slavery language, they are slaves to sin. So a slave to sin is deceived into thinking he's not a slave at all. Have you noticed that? People who are slaves to sin think they're not slaves, but they're free. What would you say it means when it says that God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual immorality for the degrading of their bodies with one another? Would you say that that's, that's God loving them and giving them freedom to do whatever he wants? Or is that actually the wrath of God in their lives, causing them to be ever increasingly in bondage to wickedness? That's not freedom, but they're being lied to. They're being lied to by their evil tyrant master, who is sin or Satan, different ways of saying the same thing. Does that make sense? So the idea of like, there are two options and only two, slave to sin or slave to God. Do you see that in Romans 6? You've got two options and only two. You're a slave to sin or a slave to God. There is no third option, namely not a slave at all. That's not an option. We were made, made to serve. That's what we're made to do. And, yeah. You know, isn't that the big lie that the laws believe that they, they can be their own master? Sure. Do they live like it? Like, like every day they're like, I'm just going to do what I want to do today? Right. Yeah. I mean, don't they say that basically my time, my energy, and my money is mine to spend? But the argument is that you know, they don't belong to God, but they don't belong to the mm-hmm. They're their own master. Autonomy. What's that? Autonomy. Yeah. I mean, one of the number one like favorite words in, in American history is freedom, right? Freedom for what? Freedom to do what? I would say a secular person would say freedom to do what I want, right? I mean, without specifically without government interference. You know, like in the movie uh, Hunt for Red October, where the two Russian guys are talking about when they're they're defecting, and and the one guy says, "I want to live in Montana and raise rabbits." Remember, and uh, and he's like, uh, "Well, this is during the Cold War," and and it's like, uh, so you can go to state from state to state, yeah, as much as you want, like no papers. Well, in the Russian systems, like papers means you got guards at borders checking your car, checking the trunk of your car. Well, we wanted to live in a country where the government's not going to be so intrusive. That's what the founding fathers were thinking about. They, they wanted freedom from taxation and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, so I'm not getting into pol- political science, but what I'm saying is freedom. But, but when we think about freedom, when most Americans think of freedom, they do think of auto- autonomy. They think of autonomy. All right? Another movie, uh, Last of the Mohicans, where you got Hawkeye, and he's your quintessential American, right? He is not in a militia. He's not anything. He's just doing what he wants. He's like Daniel Boone, right? You get that feeling. He's like, well, how in the middle of the French and Indian War, how is it that you, a loyal subject to the crown? He's like, I don't call myself a subject to anything. What does he mean by that? I do what I want to do. And if I want to go to Kentucky, the, what I do is I look at the sun where it's setting and I just turn left sudden-like and I go to Kentucky. That's how I get there. That's that American freedom that now in the 21st century, it's autonomy. You do what you want with your time, your energy, your money. Paul didn't think like that. He basically said, I'm not my own. I'm bought at a price. What do I do with my day? do I do with my day? And I tell you, brothers, this, though I know that what I've been saying is true doctrine, I have a hard time. I personally have a hard time living it. I've got a strong rebel inside me that fights for my own autonomy to do what I want with my time, energy, and money. Does that make sense? So how do we get there? How do we join Paul as a bond slave of God? How do we, how do we, because Romans 6 says you are, if you're a Christian, you are in fact 
a bond slave of God. How can we ramp that up until we think like Paul does in this matter? We sit under the teaching of the word. We study the word uh, to show ourselves approved. We act on the word, what we're reading and, and learning. Okay. Let, let, me, let me very much, uh, we start with that, but let's get very practical. Autonomy says, I can do what I want with my own things, right? With my own time. All right, now you're learning from the scripture. You can't. You have a master. So practically speaking, like with a human master, how would the slave find out what he's doing that day? First thing in the morning, ask. He'd ask the master, what do, you, what do you want me to do with my day? Do you think you could do that? Yes. Like in your quiet time, you say, all right, Lord, it seems reasonable to me to go to work today. <laughs> and the Lord will confirm that in your, in your spirit because you made a certain commitment and you have to pay for your bills and all that. All right. So, but you could, uh, you know, I don't think you should assume anything. Ask him about everything you think to do today. Everything. Lord, after work, I'm planning on doing this. Is this, does this line up with your will? Should I do this with my time? Should I do this with my money? Should I do this with my strength or my gifts? That, ask him. James says you do not have because you do not ask God. And I think fundamentally in James 1, he says, ask for wisdom. God, do you want me to spend my life this way? Now, here's the thing. You could, as a Christian, go your whole Christian life and not really develop the habit of doing that. And thereby, what will happen is you'll make many decisions that are not lined up with God's will. And, and it doesn't mean you'll go to hell. I'm not saying that. But it does mean you'll have a higher percentage of wood, hay, and straw among your works that will be burned up on Judgment Day. Do you see what I'm saying? You will have made bad decisions for that stretch of time and with that set of resources, and you will have wasted it, and it will be ignited on Judgment Day as waste. And so it doesn't mean that you, it does say in 1 Corinthians 3, you yourself will be saved, but as one escaping through the flames. You don't want to live a life like that. So instead, the idea is ask him, what should I spend my time on today or this week? What should I spend... So the more you do that, I would argue, the more eternally consequential your life will be, the more eternally fruitful. If you look at Romans 6, Paul argues from fruit. NIV gives benefit, but the word really is fruit. What fruit did you have from your autonomy? Back in the days of your autonomy, when you're doing whatever you want, what fruit came from that? Pain. Pain rottenness, things of which you are now ashamed, he says. That's what you got. You got things of which you're now ashamed. You did things you're, of which you're now ashamed. But now, the fruit you lead leads to holiness and the benefit is eternal life. That's the fruit you get. So you're talking about personal holiness and fruit for the kingdom. So here's, you, you're like, man, I have a lot to lose. If I do this, if I actually stop thinking like an autonomous person and start thinking like a slave of God, I'm going to have a bad life. <laughs> I'm going to be like, I'm going to be doing all these things I don't want to do. That's a lie of Satan. What you're going to do is you're going to be more fruitful than ever before. You're going to be more fruitful with your time, energy, and money, eternally fruitful. Will you be free from pain? Will you have an easy life? Did Paul have an easy life as a servant of God? No, he had actually a much harder life. But would you say that Paul's life was the most fruitful other than Jesus that you know of? Yeah. I don't know anybody that trumps him. I don't know anybody that went over Paul in terms of fruit. His writing, his church planting, his discipling, it's whatever. I think he had the most fruitful life other than Jesus of anyone that's ever lived. And why? Because this, these weren't just words for him. He actually lived like a bond slave of God. So we just spent 20 minutes on the first phrase, Paul, a bond slave of God. All right. But it's really important. I mean, it's something for leaders, but it's also something for all Christians. Any final comments on Paul, a bond slave of God? I do like the Old Testament examples sometimes that we get of these ways of life that we're unfamiliar with. When you look at Joseph living in Potiphar's house, he says basically to his wife, that look, the master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house because he's turned all that over to me. 
So as it relates to our conversation, it seems like he has standing orders to take care of the house, and he has very specific instructions as to things that he does to run the house well. But then to pray to God occasionally for our sake to say, look, I know my standing orders that you've given me, but are there specific orders today that you want me to include along with those? Uh, and I think that's cool. But the um, other thing that you were saying was this, what's motivational or how do you begin to think that way is the thought of the verse that says that we, our master is the one that we obey. We either obey sin or we obey God. And it's very motivating to me to think that I want Christ as my master and that's the master I want to obey. You're right. I mean, don't you know that when you present or offer yourself to someone to obey him as slaves, you are the slaves to the one you actually obeyed? That's how he begins that whole logic. So what you have to do is look at your track record. If your track record is one of sin, then you've been acting like you're part, still in Satan's dark kingdom. You've been acting that way. Timothy. Going back to Matthew 28, yeah. I still doubt whether you finish <laughs> so you're wondering why we went on to Titus today. I am so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> From God's perspective, the price he paid to buy this slave is huge. It's beyond imagination. Um, that's one. And then the other thing that is very important here is that the slaves are the representatives, in fact, maybe the only representatives of God and the Master, which is unbelievable privilege to be a slave in that. Amen. So let's talk about the thing you said, and so maybe I'll smooth your ruffled feathers a little bit here. Um, you know, um, but yeah, uh, and it links up with what you said. You're not your own. You're bought at a price. So, Timothy, you're saying the price is infinite. Um, and Jesus wants us to feel that because the Holy Spirit told Paul to write that you're not your own. A price was paid for you. Or he says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, uh, be shepherds of the church of God, God, which he bought with his own blood. A very unusual phrase, the blood of God. The reason it's unusual is usually the word God refers to God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, and he never has nor never will have blood. But Jesus is God as well, and we don't have any doctrinal problem. It's just an unusual phrase. The point is, there was a very high price paid for you. And we're supposed to feel the weight of that, all right? So as we're acting autonomous and making bad decisions in our autonomy, the Holy Spirit wants to remind us of the price that was paid for us. You know, the, the master's saying, I paid a lot for you. For you to act like this is dishonoring to me. That's the point. And so fundamentally, he, Paul is trying in Romans 6 to persuade us to think like slaves, slaves of God, in 1 Corinthians 6, to think we've been bought with a price and we should live a certain way. Anything more, Timothy, on that, brother? Um, yeah, and then I never thought about a slave having the privilege to represent their master in the way that we are interested here. Yeah. It's just a huge burden um, and a huge calling, and it's almost exceeds the responsibility of the slave in the way we understand it. Yeah, although um, from what I've been learning, apostolos was a very common task for slaves, you know, because, uh, you know, they didn't have cell phones, they didn't have telephones, they didn't have telegraphs, so if they're going to communicate, they got to send messengers all the time. You know, uh, like the centurion, he said, don't you know that I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me? I tell this one, go when he goes. I tell that one, come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. Uh, Luke 2, in those days, and uh, uh, a decree was sent forth from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Do you think Caesar Augustus went anywhere to make sure that happened? I doubt it. I think he stayed in his summer villa or whatever, <laughs> you know, just... The word went out. He issued a decree. And so the idea is that the message goes out through the chain of command, through the servants. And so what you're saying here is this bond slave of God is a messenger, authoritative messenger of Jesus Christ, an ambassador and a messenger. Yeah, Timothy, that's a good point. My picture, that is the whole 
Old Testament story of uh, the serpent that was sent out to get right for Isaac. Right. He represented mm. Isaac very well in that endeavor. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. So fundamentally, um, I'm going to courageously forge ahead to talk more about Titus, if that's all right. Um, um, you know, the, the planning of planning of healthy churches here is very much to the to uh, the issue of the Great Commission. And the key is leaders, and we need leaders who will think like all Christians should think. I am a slave of God, and I am an apostle of Christ or Jesus Christ. And he says, Paul says, this is my role. My purpose is for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that accords to godliness or that produces godliness, etc. So that's great commission language, definitely. All right? I'm sent to make disciples. And I'm sent that they would be baptized. Paul said in Corinthians, he doesn't care whether he does the actual ritual of baptism, doesn't matter, but it's going to be done. They're going to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then they're going to be taught to obey everything Christ has commanded, Right? That is what I'm here to do. That is what a healthy local church should do. That is what a healthy local church should do. You go to a local church, you should be hearing truth. You should be hearing rivers of truth, lots of truth. It should be flowing, and that truth should be converting truth, the faith of God's elect, that they are converted, and maturing truth so that they're being taught to obey everything Christ has commanded. It should just be a river of truth. That's what first. Timothy 3 says the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So we're getting biblical truth, or as Jesus said, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. They should be doing truth. So the implication is Paul saying, that's what I do. I'm a bond slave and an apostle for truth, you know, for the, the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So that means church leaders should be really good at Bible study, I think. They should be really knowledgeable about the Bible. They should know what the Bible teaches. They should, you know, do their best to present themselves to God as workmen who do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. They have to be good at the Bible. Does that make sense? I think that lines up exactly with what Paul's saying here and what it says. Chris, read verse 9 again, if you would. Talking about elders. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as God so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, so we've gone ahead of ourselves here, but since we're talking about truth, he, meaning the elders that you're going to appoint in every town in Crete, the elder must meet the criteria. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. What does that mean, Chris? As it has been taught as it's been taught to you by someone. All right. So let's imagine uh, a slave that's sent as an ap uh, uh, apostolos, an apostle, with a message written on a scroll and sealed with the master seal. What is something that that messenger must not do with the message? Open it up and change it. Does he have the authority to do that? No, absolutely not. He will get in huge trouble if he, if, he, if he opens that, breaks the seal, or finds some way to slide a heated needle under and loosen the thing up and change a few words, just change a few words from the master and then seal it back up. No one will ever know the difference. He does not have the right to do that. And so it is that good elders in a local church must hold to the doctrine that was entrusted to them. They don't have the right to change it. They don't have the right to reinvent it. And so a healthy church, the elders know that. They know that they are given this Bible. It was there before they were born. It'll be there after they're dead. Their job is to deliver it as it's written. Deliver it faithfully as it has been taught. And hold firmly to it themselves. All right, that's what he's saying. Why? So that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. Is that what your translation says, Chris? Encourage others? Uh, to give instruction in sound doctrine. Give instruction in sound doctrine. That's very different. I have to look at the Greek on that. But anyway, that's good. I'm, I'm all in favor of that. Give instruction in sound doctrine. And what's the next part? And also to rebuke those who contradict. Re rebuke them. All right. My translation says refute them. 
Um, so refute, um, I'm, I'll stick with refute. Basically, you win the debate. At, at least the, the uh, false teachers aren't going to win the day, which would include verse 10. What does verse 10 talk about? For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. What does that mean, the circumcision party? Or group. Or group. What does that mean? The circumcision group. We just keep bumping into these people everywhere. They must have gotten around. They were everywhere. Judaizers. Alan, what is a Judaizer? A Judaizer was somebody who was essentially trying to make Christianity a denomination under Judaism by saying that you, you know, you're okay in your Christian beliefs provided you also hold on to some of these traditions, specifically circumcision. Right. And and Chris, could you verse 14 as well? 14. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Okay, so we got also a mixture. It's like a mixture, like a, like a, a stew of Jewish legalism Jewish myths and then commands that are just made up, sometimes ascetic. They're generally asceticism or harsh Sabbatarian regulations. It's just a mess. Anyway, Paul's, Paul's saying the elders, Titus, that you set up in every town, they, they've got to have the chops. They've got to have the ability to refute these people. They're hard to refute, actually. But you got to be able to do it. you gotta be, you got to have men that will be able to stand firm and refute. Timothy, what were you saying? Yes, so the... The thing he talks about the Judaizers, um, insubordinate, name, empty talkers, is very different to the characteristics and behaviors of the elders. Elders is all behaviors. They're not violent, not greedy, all of those things. Character traits. It's all behavior related, whereas those are only empty talking. Yeah, so Timothy, what I'm going to say here, and this is what we get, uh, we got a clear snapshot of good church, local church leaders in chapter one, Titus one. We haven't really walked through it yet, but you got character traits coupled with sound doctrine, the combination of what they teach and how they live. That's what you're looking for. And that, that is the kind of local church that can spread the great commission. That's what we're looking for. That's what healthy churches are. That's what I was zealous about when I was in India with the IMB, you know, making sure that that's what's being planted. Because you've got to have that for the decades to come. For the years to come and decades to come, the converts are going to float away like chaff. All right? But if they are genuinely dis discipled, drawn into a healthy local church, and they're taught sound doctrine, then they're going to last. There'll, there'll be an impact there in that community in Rajasthan or all over the world. That's what the healthy church. But also the courage to rebuke sharply or to silence yeah, also comes out. Yeah, it takes a lot of courage to silence, silence the Judaizers because Judaizers always felt they were on the higher moral ground. They lived more strict lives, more, you know, you know, they were legalists uh, and they judged people. So it's intimidating. Yeah, go ahead. Would you venture a guess as to the percentage of churches in the United States that you would consider to be healthy? I really couldn't. Not to mention such a problem. You're not, I wouldn't put it as high as 90%. <laughs> 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 that was just humor at the end of the at the end of the day here. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I wish it would be that high. But um, here's the thing: Satan is really good at what he does. The Holy Spirit's better at what he does. But it's a battle. Every church is battling these themes. Go on in every local church. So, anyway, any final comments as we finish up today? Okay. Rick, would you mind closing in prayer? Thanks, brother. Lord God, once again, we come to you with thankful hearts for um, helping us have the discipline to take time out of our day and time out of our week to just ruminate on you and your word. Lord, allow that word as taught today to impact us and change us and help us to appreciate our role as bond servants mm -hmm. 
Well, thank you for the men in this room, all of whom have had occasion to recognize their need for a Savior due to a sin in their life. We ask this blessing now in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.